The Engineers Collective is brought to you by Bentley Systems. Around the world, engineers, architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to accelerate project delivery and improve asset performance for the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are Advancing Infrastructure. Uh, welcome to episode two of the Engineers Collective, the all-new podcast from New Civil Engineer. I am editor Mark Hansford, and each month we will be dissecting the big issues of the time with my colleague, Deputy Editor Alexandra Wynn. Hello. And today, uh, this month, we are joined by uh, Henrik Roth, who runs the Urban Turbine out of Cranfield University and is reimagining how airports should work worldwide. Welcome, Henrik. Okay, thank you, Mark. We'll come to you shortly, Henrik. But first, we're going to discuss the news of the month. So, Alex, last month, you were quite bold. You came out in favour of Heathrow. Now, we've seen their master plan. What are you thinking now? Okay, I admit I'm confused. I was leaning a little towards being positive about the whole scheme. It's it's just interesting. I think it's not what I expected. I I get that a big part of why they've phased it up into 2050 plus is perhaps to mitigate some of the concerns of the residents and air quality concerns as we know them to date. It doesn't necessarily yet take into account the bigger climate change concerns that we're all now a little more aware of, shall we say. But I don't know, I'm, I'm intrigued. It's, the plan is now to what deliver the ra- actual runway and the M25 changes by 2026. Is that right? That sounds We're right. quite clear on that. Yeah. But then terminal buildings, it says 2050 plus. I, I don't think that's really a plan. That's more of a suggestion. Yeah. I mean, clearly we get that you, you either build a runway or you don't. So yeah. you, you kind of got to do that. But the idea that there's just this incremental growth in the terminal capacity as and when they need it sort of does feel a little bit like they're trying to fudge something yeah i think it could be a good thing it might be that you don't need huge capacity and terminal buildings that are quite complicated to build in that particular location that that might be what the suggestion is um or that you know we don't know what future needs will be in 10 15 years so we don't need to act now and get it wrong I I like that some of the plan has a lot of emphasis on trying to green some of the area. You know, there's absolutely no pleasant cycle or pedestrian ways into the airport at the moment, except from the car. Um, But it's not the plan that beat Gatwick, is it? Well, interesting point. wonder what Gatwick think about Heathrow's plan. I guess perhaps they will come out with their thoughts on on Heathrow's plan in in due course. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, slightly sitting on the fence again. That's where I am. What else has been sort of um, on your mind this okay. month? Okay, this is we need to start lifting our eyes a little bit out of the southeast. We know this. We keep challenging ourselves to do that more and more. I am at the moment quite intrigued. We wrote a little story just about um, contractors being sought by Network Rail for the Hope Valley line between Manchester and Sheffield. What, what pray tell, is the Hope Valley line? Well, this is one that's kind of, it's one of the smaller parts, I think, of the bigger old Northern Hub rail plan that 
should we say hasn't quite come to fruition yeah. um what this does essentially is it, it, it i think it's just getting a lot more of those trains that are slow moving stuck behind freight trains on that line um passing points so they can you know speed past yeah. some of the freight and, and slightly improve some of those awful um uh, missed targets on um, punctuality that i think might be happening in the north um but bigger picture really is i i'm wondering if this might be a glimmer of hope that northern hub is back in the plan you know i don't know what do you think oh, like, uh, well i will i definitely think is there's a lot of energy and noise around northern powerhouse rail northern hub whatever we, we choose to want to call it now there's a lot of political support for those kind of schemes and, in and the it, north in the north and and if you know all that bad publicity around the the, the electrification mm. problems if, if that's now starting to sort of be forgotten about to extent that we can now start talking seriously about getting some of these other schemes back and going again well i think that's fantastic i think the only concern is i mean how do we get the money unlocked for this because mm. obviously a big part of the network rail problem was some of the money had to be shifted to other mm. attention there were other um, areas after the hendy review things are stuck on a certain transport secretary's desk i believe un- unsigned and unapproved um the whole point is they got all those north mares to be able to help unlock un- investment but i just feel a, a little i don't know it's just tragic you look back at the original plan i mean northern hub timeline i think we wrote this august 2013 by funny enough early 2019 all remaining schemes were to be complete for the Northern Hub, which would have included electrification. It would have included um, the full upgrade of um, the rail stations around Manchester, particularly the main one, obviously, is Piccadilly. It needed two extra platforms to make all that Audsall cord effort really come to its full potential. We're nowhere on that. No, it it really got held back by the whole electrification thing, didn't it? And that, I mean, last month we talked about the projects which which shouldn't get stopped um, if the spending review is, is is a harsh one. Well, this these 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 are classic examples of projects which really probably should go ahead. And actually, if money is, let's say, rediverted from other riskier projects, well, these are these are good examples, aren't they? And, and, and I suppose. More than anything else, what's interesting is is the noise around rail in the north, and and we've written it this this month in the magazine. Actually, this when we talk about that big risky project, high speed two, the real support for high speed two is actually in in the north, and actually the connectivity, mm. Manchester to Birmingham, Manchester to Leeds. There's a lot to be said still for a really rigorous review of high speed two and what we're trying to achieve with it, and actually. Do we need to still start talking seriously about terminating at Old Oak Common initially so you can do the connectivity piece without having to get too bogged down in that really, really difficult Euston Euston Approaches section, which is where all the risk is? I imagine a big, big chunk of the risk pot is sitting in that part of the railway. And that could unlock so many schemes in the north. Yeah, I'm really intrigued. I think, you know, high-speed too was considering wasn't it rebranding on the connectivity side of it completely trying to drop the idea of the high speed being the main feature but what what kind of connectivity do we mean are we we still making that point that it all still has to stem 
towards London or is there an acceptance that genuinely economically and all other reasons connectivity between the major cities themselves is the right way forward we I think we need to really start putting our money where our mouth is on that I, I you know rather than just I think really these things need to get back on the table. I think they do. I think it's really interesting that Alan Cook, chairman of HS2, is currently doing a review. Now he's playing down the extent of that review. He just said it's the sort of thing any incoming chairman would do. One wonders if when he puts his findings and thoughts to to Chris Grayling, assuming he's still transport secretary in a few weeks' time, a few days' time, um, obviously that's going to change things quite significantly if he changes and, and whether or not Grayling's still there or a new transport secretary might actually say to him actually let's have a bit more of a review please let's be a bit more thorough and you know Terry Morgan Alan Cook's immediate predecessor he was busy telling the House of Lords back in back in January that the old common terminus idea is is the right one well Alan Cook's got access to the same information that led Terry to, to think that so you've got to be thinking it's still in there mm. in, the, in there somewhere and I don't know. I, I do think we, we as a country haven't properly explored Old Oak and, and the real benefit it's got the HS2 going through it, West Coast Main Line goes through it, the Great Western Railway Line goes through it, obviously Crossrail goes through it ish. with a very good ish, with a very good connection to Heathrow. And if we're talking Heathrow and we're talking proper connectivity and surface access, what a great opportunity Old Oak Common is. He's thinking about. So, Henrik, what do you think about High Speed 2? You, you are, after all, rethinking how our airport should work. You have to, surely you have to look at something like High Speed 2, which is connecting these big cities around the UK in the context of a broader um, transport picture, which has got to include airports and aviation. So, so where do you stand on it? Well, I think uh, living in, in Camden and seeing the massive infrastructure uh, implication it, it has on on the extension of Houston train station, I would have expected a little more connectivity achieved by by the by the system connecting directly to airports along the track, which would have been very much in in line with what we are thinking in the urban turbine to to think in urban transport terms, not uh, isolated uh, transport systems. And I think we're missing an opportunity here in linking uh, aviation to to train connectivity. It is a spectacular fact, is it not, that I think High Speed 2 goes close to, but has no direct connection into connectivity with four major airports, Heathrow, Birmingham, Leeds, Manchester. Has Leeds got an airport? Yeah. Yeah, Leeds has got an airport. Leeds, um, there, there are, and, and it misses them all. Misses them all. That's quite an impressive feat in a small country like the UK, really, isn't it? You've actually avoided the airports without putting dog legs on. I, I... But it indicates a, a typical uh, pattern of, um, um, I would say, a thinking which needs to be, uh, you know, overhauled. Uh, why do we invest in this um, infrastructure if we miss so many opportunities? So, so I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm, I'm talking out HS2 here. But I think what I am saying is, we still need to look at what we're doing with it. We still need to, to to look at what we're trying to achieve, how we can max those benefits, get them higher, better connectivity with some of our other infrastructure would be a way of doing it potentially. 
connecting with employment centres, which airports are, and other and other centres are. I just think there's still some work to be done there, and clearly no government's making a decision on really signing off HS2 until A, we've got a new Prime Minister, B, we know what's happening with Brexit, and C, we've done a spending review. So we have now got six months where actually the industry could get together and really, really do something quite powerful and impressive around HS2. I think that's my hope. There's three big stories I would like to talk about briefly, um, Alex. Um, And the first, I think, I might be a little bit controversial here, but the news that the M4 bypass, uh, the bypass of the Ringglass tunnels through through South Wales, has been cancelled by the Welsh Assembly Government. Uh, They've gone against the public inquiry inspector's finding who ruled in favour of delivering the scheme and the First Minister has instead said, no, we cannot afford this scheme. We will never be able to afford this scheme in the near future. So in the fairness to the people who may be affected by this scheme, I am saying, no, this scheme is not happening. And he's gone further and he said, even if we did have the money on environmental grounds of the route the the bypass to the south of of, uh, Newport would take through through environmentally protected land. Um, the, the, the negatives, the environmental impact, are worse than the benefits of the, uh, of the bypass and reduced disruption, etc., etc. I would never say yes to it. I think that's a politician being quite bold and making a decision. What do you reckon? I don't know what to tell you. I, I think maybe it was the wrong Wales connectivity project. I think... It's nice to get from uh, England into South West Wales a bit quicker. I would say it's the only motorway at the moment in Wales altogether. Has anyone thought about getting north to south or south to I north? I think that's quite interesting. Yeah, Have you Wales tried has it? got one motorway and that's yeah. it. I think I counted something like 80-something roundabouts to get between north and south Wales. I might be exaggerating, but it was it was something close to that. It's a nightmare. You have to go into England to get back to Wales. I don't. I don't really know how that's not a priority. Now it might be a modest country, but you know, one or two people do like to travel north to south. So I am with you here, and I should. I think I should stress for our for our listeners that you've got a bit of form here, haven't you? Being, I may be Welsh. <laughs> you may be Welsh, and you also may have form of trying to get to mid Wales uh, via public transport, yes. via car. And how long did it take you to well, get? And that from? was even kind of the southwest bit. That was, the, was that was relatively easy. So, and um, it was easy enough driving there. Well, even in my dilapidated old jeep. I no longer have um I think it was four and a half hours and that included time to keep pumping up the tires that were um deflating on me as I drove up the M4 at 4am um on the way back yes it was maybe a farm in the Brecon Beacons but it was still in a notable town in that area um it still required I think a an eight kilometer starter hike um, with a coffee flask, uh, at least two buses before I had a changeover at Brecon for, I think, some hours. I remember going for lunch and still having time to lie in the sun for a few hours. Um, another bus to Abergavenny, Abergavenny to Newport on the train. I was now on the train. A little layover in Newport before the um, faster train back to West London. A little hop, skip and a jump through central London up to North London staggering home I think I made it at a total of I'm looking at it something like nine hours and I think that was quite 
doing quite, quite well. modest. I think I'd planned that about two months in advance. So in case you think Alex is making this up, this this is this is a feature we wrote in New Civil Engineer. You can stick it, go into New Civil Engineer com and and and, and have, a, have a search for it. It's there. It took that long. So I think what I'm saying before everyone gets too bent out of shape over a 1.4 billion pound project which has been cancelled. And yes, we spent 40 million pounds to this day getting it to where it's got to. Let let's look at the bigger picture. What the Welsh transport infrastructure really needs and that 1.4 billion pounds would put on a lot of buses a lot of buses and maybe even a train or two yeah or you know a road without 12 roundabouts within a mile there's one final thing which is niggling me in in our world of civil engineering right now and that is hammersmith bridge hammersmith bridge beautiful beautiful piece of historic engineering it survived three ira bombs and yet now, having done all that, it's going to be closed for at least three years because there isn't enough money to do some fairly routine maintenance to its cast iron structure. And I just cannot believe that in this city of ours, London, in 2019, that can be allowed to happen. And this, in the same month where our good friends at Crossrail, we hear, have spent £15,000 repainting the hoardings outside all their stations to cover up the fact that it is not opened in 2018. And I know Hammersmith Bridge is not going to have been repaired for £15,000, but it would have been a start, don't you think? Oh, it's outrageous. It's politics. This is pure politics. We know it is. They're not even covering up that it's politics. Hammersmith don't want to relinquish control to Richmond, the richer borough who want to berate Hammersmith for doing nothing. I may happen to live on one side of the bridges boroughs, but I've had an email asking for well asking for responses to a survey now about the disadvantages felt by people, businesses, whoever living on either side of the bridge now, so that they can start to gather a campaign to get it back up and running quicker. It it's extraordinary. It's been in a dilapidated state for so long. It's a beautiful old bridge. It's pretty iconic. Not far out of central London. I know it's kind of out west, but it isn't far. And politics has allowed this to happen. There's no other excuse. Well, no com- other excuse. Well, no, it's comical, is it not? That you know, this month again, we are talking about old ambitious plans for lifting bridges uh, over the Thames to, to the east. You know, Lower uh, Thames um, crossing, Silvertown. Silvertown. We're talking about all these wonderful, new, exciting ideas. Well, we've got a bridge. Yeah. We just shut it for three years. I know we've got a few others in West London. I will, I will give people that. It is a little uh, an embarrassment of riches, but you cannot just let something in a a city like London going to a dilapidated state for no other reason than political ill will. It's it's outrageous. 20 miles per hour, potholes everywhere. You know how they've been man- maintaining and operating that bridge? A little, a little ma- marshal with a flag. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's a little more than a flag. There is a barrier. Okay, it's Manually barrier. operated at either side when more than two hopper buses go on the bridge. It's, it's extraordinary. Oh, are, we, are we mad, Henrik? Well, it's, it's hard to explain to uh, people outside London, you know, that uh, you know, in all these uh, amazing developments we see, buildings, you know, reaching higher levels every day, 
uh, we are not able to maintain existing infrastructure. You know, we I, just close it. <laughs> Simple. <laughs> it's difficult. We'll close it. Anyway, moving on. It's uh, time to start talking future of airports. But before we do, just to remind you that this podcast is brought to you in association with uh, Bentley Systems. Around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley's software solutions to accelerate project delivery and improve asset performance for the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. For more, go to Bentley.com. So we're here this month with Henrik Roth, who runs the Urban Turbine out of Cranfield University. Really pleased to have you with us uh, this month, Henrik. Obviously, you recently spoke at our Future of Airports conference and shared your brilliant insights into where airports could be going and how they can better work with the cities they sit in. I think the, f- the first thing I would like to mention is that um, what's happening right now is an exciting time for airports to finally transgress the the boundary to other areas as they are fundamentally placed in an urban or regional setting which they often have ignored in the past yeah. and that led to confusion and, and, and um, let's say resistance of the population to uh, aircraft noise and all the associated kind of impact an airport has but in fact, what I see is a great, much greater benefit for uh, the local population or for, for people with airports. And in that respect, airports are much more uh, than, they, than they are seen today as, as infrastructure. They are part of our daily life. And so technology has integrated already the first step, as you said, uh, of the airport process in, into our day, daily, daily life. When I book a flight today, uh, it takes me minutes to to scan a few options I have, and and then I check in the same moment, and I know when I, whenever I arrive at the airport, I just need to hit security, and then I'm through to the gate if I wish. So that's that's kind of the mentality we um, experience today as part of our of a global change of our of our life. Absolutely. So you know, we, so we're already really changing what we want from our airport infrastructure and I think we've seen that here in the UK we've seen that at Heathrow haven't we where they built uh, T5 with huge space for check-in because it was being designed delivered at a time when people did largely still arrive at the airport and check-in T2 it's got much smaller check-in space and I guess as airports move forward now they're already thinking about how they use how much space they need and how they use it differently but that's only the tip of the iceberg, isn't it, really? Because there's several more stages which they may move through quite quickly, which could really lead them to rethinking their space. So so where's the, the next step? Yeah, I think that the next step is baggage. And uh, whoever's travelling, um, if you are on a business trip with a small bag, you know that doesn't really create a big challenge for you. If you travel with kits and baggage that becomes a different story. If you then want to take a public transport to the airport, uh, it might be even uh, an undesirable kind of part of the airport experience to get to the airport. So um, there are many um, ways to separate passengers from the baggage. 
And that's one of the key um, projects we are currently looking at at the Urban Turbine is uh, how can you uh, help airports, passengers, airlines, and probably create a new business for a third um, party uh, baggage operator to think of kind of Amazon style baggage delivery, where uh, pick up from home, um, dropping in, in central locations in the city is part of an integrated system. Uh, liberating terminals from the baggage and uh, ultimately having baggage uh, traveling a completely different way. Potentially in a completely different plane, or even a potentially different airport. Exactly. So if, if you travel to Paris, um, you, you have a choice whether you travel by train or plane. If your bag can go straight on a kind of tunnel link uh, in a train uh, in a different way, it, it's it's a different story. So, I mean, this, this is... Um, Two years ago, when I was starting to, to raise the issue, a lot of people thought, well, nice idea, but it's not really happening yet or at all. But nowadays, uh, with an increasing cost awareness of airports, um, the cost to operate in a baggage system is quite immense. Uh, it's a substantial part of the terminal occupied by baggage machinery and if you look at the terminal today it's becoming more and more place for people where you uh, you know you meet other people you um, you wave goodbye to your friends and family um, it's becoming a, a kind of people driven space baggage is a logistic Process and it requires a certain structural grid, and you know, so so different rational, and to mixing these two things in one building is quite, um, yeah, quite a challenge, and increases the expensive part of the airport infrastructure dramatically. So if you if you begin to separate the two things, thinking a terminal in in people terms and baggage in logistic terms, you create a different rational. The the problem you have in aviation is everything you change has to go through a validation process. And it's not a simple task. So that's why we've set the idea of separating baggage from, um, from the passenger as a key topic, which might lead us to maybe three or four different options we, ha we have. Can I just ask about one of those options? Because in my mind, as a potential passenger with too many bags one day, it might happen. Um, do, do the bags just, I mean, do they just get taken away from you at home? And then that, that seems quite close to being imaginable. But how do I get reunited with them? Is it something, I mean, I think even today, Amazon's coming out and saying that drone deliveries are only months away so do I just arrange a drone or or non-drone but close to a drone to send off my package baggage and I'll meet it where it's convenient for me at the other end it doesn't have to be sort of additional hard infrastructure at the airport that I go to but I mean are we are we even talking about freeing up the baggage from past the travel process. I, I just do that separately. I take my hand baggage with whatever small liquids I need. Um, and we all meet up where it's convenient for me and my family or 
loved ones is it is it likely that we go that far i think that it's a very interesting question you raise because the autonomous vehicle on the ground and uh, drones and an air taxi mm -hmm. are a major disruptor and they might bring a complete new level into the industry and many airports are very um are looking for for options uh, to benefit from from that option but they're not quite sure to what extent they really want to engage with this technology uh, if we have drones uh, connected to the commercial uh, airspace because it eats up of the capability of operating larger commercial aircraft so that's definitely a no-go right. um, there's an option of uh, using land side for for landing or operating drones and then having a connection to the air side um, so there's a, there's a great technical benefit from dropping a bag somewhere having it delivered to a place close to the aircraft mm. but that process is quite different to anything we are experiencing today and in terms of legislation in terms of security i mean we've seen gatwick as an example how bad things mm. can can go so everything you do in this direction has to be tested and and thought through as a concept and that that's uh, i i wouldn't give you any kind of uh, direction today where we end up in, in five, six years time because all that technology now enables us to, to think in a very different way. In reality, we have to conceptualize the use of this technology in terms of energy use, in terms of all sorts of um, impact it has on our day-to-day -day life. And that's, um, sometimes I feel the topic future airport is is very exciting and interesting. Sometimes it's completely distracting because people feel, oh, that's the future. And uh, they believe in all these kind of flying um, uh, vehicles and, and, and this excitement is coming with it. But I think uh, for, for us, it's all these are tools which we can integrate in the system that eventually uh, will have um, its role in the, in the aviation industry. Meanwhile, airports are changing today into what they look like in the future. So, and yeah. that's, that's why airport operators are very interested in, in the research because they all know they have to, um, they have to change. There. But where do they feel is the, is the right time and the right place to, to do those changes? It's that perfect balance, isn't it? Not missing out on Amazon or whoever, taking it completely out of your control, but at the same time making it work within the constraints, yeah. I suppose. We know drones are tricky around airports. So yeah, there are certain technical constraints, but it'll be interesting, I suppose, seeing that blue sky stuff working with. And I think today each airport is a different, has a different narrative. And some airports might be perfectly connected, like London City was a more than 70% public transport connectivity. Um, we we have a conversation with them about linking the airport to the cable car, which you know, takes um, people across the River Thames and why not connecting it to the airport? Mm -hmm. Obviously, they already have a high public transport connectivity, but um, that's 
something which um, would apply to London City, not necessarily to any other airport. You know, um, so by considering further options of how an airport can can be used for um, airports begin to think more what benefits I have if I relocate baggage out of my traditional terminal location and I if I can host uh, I think in, in the conference it was mentioned the next uh, event to be happening in, in London City conference center in the, yeah, in the terminal absolutely and and I think that this this kind of of um, thinking needs critical mass before things really change and also uh, the pressure from environmental uh, requirements will have an, an impact. You know, a few years ago, it was more seen as something you have to tick. But today, it, it becomes also an, I would say, a marketing aspect. If if you provide uh, air transport at sustainable, uh, you know, level, so it's 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 juggling with so many different components. But driving a certain rationale into the in, into the kind of journey into the future, so that that's I think the the, the challenge of any kind of thinking in this direction. So, but I think yeah, it is fascinating, isn't it? That you take the the check in element away from some of these airports, you take the baggage away. <clears throat> the next step, you take the the security away, maybe because maybe for lots of facial recognition or or gate analysis, you you don't need hard barriers to to check people. Suddenly, you've got a lot of space in what in many cases are, are beautiful buildings um, to do well. Or who knows what with as, as as you say, we talked at, at our conference about you turning them into exhibition centres, cinemas, you know, venues of all kinds of it, and and you can really start to integrate them into the the city in which in which they sit and, and live so the opportunities are fascinating if we if if, if we can exploit them and um, one thing what what happens is and that's driving the this development is we've got a steady increase of passengers so even if we we say we save space in terminals um, today by removing these functionalities f away from the terminal, we will need more space because we need we have more passengers. So, uh, and one thing what what is a, a critical issue for many airports is we design them for the peak hour, and no other infrastructure is is impacted by by that aspect as air, airports are, and especially regional airports are very affected from Bomba by that because you've got an early morning peak and you've got some airlines who are demanding to use those early morning slots and for the rest of the day the the airport remains fairly underused yeah I mean even Heathrow you know everyone yeah. all the airlines they transatlantic or the, or the or the air flights from Southeast Asia they want to land at sort of seven eight o'clock in the morning don't they um so yeah that's 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 a and the more flexible change. terminals are designed mm -hmm. the more you can adopt to use that space for other for activities. So you could get people there at other times of the day, spend the day there, do whatever the facility enables you to do, do meetings there, go for a swim there. I mean, who knows what you could do? But yeah, you could so do if, if, if you look at Munich Airport, uh, they uh, very intelligently reserved a space between Terminal 1 and Terminal 2 for the Munich Airport Centre. 
and that creates a, has created a space for all sorts of activities. Mm. You've got a serving uh, in in the summer. You know, we have ice skating in the winter. So there's it's, it, it's be becoming a an urban center of the within the airport. It's small, uh, but in terms of the airport terminal size, it's quite substantial. And if you have delays uh, at some point, you've got a space where, where passengers can, can dwell and, and, and experience or have a positive experience. I don't think this is even that newer concept. It's just bringing it into today's environment. Because I remember as a child being taken to the airport as an evening out for fun to watch the planes. And, you know, the most we would do is just stand <laughs> in an area. My parents probably had a drink or two, but we were there to look at the planes they're quite glamorous i remember there were sky view areas in a lot of the airports and absolutely i've even stayed in airports in near heathrow where they make a feature of the runway being near <laughs> the hotel where you can go and watch the planes i i don't think it's an extraordinarily new concept it's just making it a more compelling reason to be in and, those places um using the opportunity of having people there to entertain them and yeah. give them a reason beyond that, just watching planes, yeah. which is... Uh, <laughs> Niche. <laughs> but what I loved is, is, and I mean, the Munich example is a great example, and what I really loved um, is the Helsinki example you use at, at the conference, where talking about where actually they've... they've Embrace the fact that people that the airport is a is a, is a place to be, and and I've actually managed to connect a residential district to the airport through a sort of green walkway, haven't they? I mean that's that's, that's a really nice idea, and it's uh, long term planning, and especially uh, Scandinavian countries are very careful in um, integrating infrastructure into urban activities. You know, we've got Copenhagen as as a very, I think the most attractive city to live in. Uh, with connecting times from most of the uh, business districts in, in in town of of forty minutes to the to the plane, so that's a quality. If if I can fly from my airport within a very short predictable time, uh, and uh, Helsinki have long long ago started um, safeguarding land to enable the airport for long-term planning to use its own land for its own residential development. And if you, if you see um, the requirement of airports, you have more and more passengers, you've got more and more people to serve them, and you create opportunities for the airport, for, for conference centers, for hotels, for, for all sorts of uh, communication, which needs to be served by people. So many airports have difficulties to get people into the airport to work there. And uh, there is a tendency of ignoring that element. And those people start working at very early hours. So there is often no public transport. So you need to create an additional set of car parks for your employees. And you create another uh, emission wave uh, for airports. So by, by tackling the the residential aspect you take a lot of boxes and and that's that's very uh, forward thinking i mean i love it i mean the obvious question is noise how do, who 
really wants to live next to a runway. I mean, there's a lot of people near Heathrow currently well, think well, they to be fair, don't want to. Be, do, do, do but, uh, but, it, but it is challenging mm. that point, and mm. I think this is the how, how do we get over that? What people think yeah. they hate versus what they actually really. Yeah. I mean. Like. Aircraft noise is often visual. You know, you mm. see aircraft and you feel it's it's noisy. You know? And we, we are exposed to to noise from from motorways, which is constant throughout the day. Mm. Um, in Helsinki, they were very clever that they safeguarded land uh, with and created a zone of a, of a lower decibel rate, allowing residential development. And most pro- most airports have the difficulty that they're long-term planning is not allowing them to to have access to those kind of areas with lower decibel rates close to the airport. But how close are we talking as well? Because we're talking right near... It's walking distance. Yeah. I mean, that sounds crazy to a lot of people. I imagine that you can live within a low decibel, low enough decibel rate environment that close to an airport, but that, that was, a runway, that, that's brilliant and That was long-term planning, you know, the, 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 the person who invented uh, Vanta, the uh, Aviapolis, uh, started very early to um, gathering land and, and promoting the idea. So it was nearly a, a, a private initiative, which then mm. ended up in one of the most, um, I would say, advantageous uh, um, initiative in, in terms of improving the, the quality of an airport. It's fascinating, isn't it? Amazing. Um, now, the other pollution area, you've mentioned it already, around airports is, is emissions, and, and a lot of that in most airports, and, and kind of Heathrow is feeling this right now, is caused by the, the, sort of the car emissions of people driving to and from. You mentioned city is brilliant. High proportion by public transport. It's not the case in many airports. So, and... I think it's another really interesting point that we easily forget that car parking is a massive revenue generator for, for airports. And so they are in this difficult position where, yes, they probably want to improve the, the air quality around their airport, but at the same time, they're regulated quite tightly. And a big revenue generator is the car park. So how do they do, how do you see them dealing with that going forwards? I mean, that, that's the, the, the biggest biggest challenge uh, for, for many airports because uh, they got used to create revenue by dragging passengers by car into the airport. Because what's the number? It's, is it's, it's really twenty-three percent of yeah, revenue is. It, car it depends parking. from airport to airport, but but, but in, as an average, yeah. uh, it's average. it's more than twenty, and in some wow. airports even mm. even more. And uh, mm. so, the one challenge is airports haven't got the land available, so you need to drive to car parks which are remote to airports so you need to have a shuttle bus from a remote car park which is slightly cheaper but and it takes quite some time to get to the airport so if you if you have an early morning flight and you don't want to pay uh, a higher fee it it's time you have to invest to get to the to the plane uh, earlier so we also heard that some investors are not really interested in multi-story car parks anymore because they are aware of of a change. So uh, car park buildings are not cheap and nobody can guarantee that in 10-15 years time we will have the amount of, of people driving to the airport by car. 
So the the entire airport access topic is, in my view, the most uh, radical change in the next ten years. You you see environmental aspects and congestion aspects popping up in in, in major cities and. The, the, the biggest challenge is suburbia, you know, how to get people from remote mm. areas to airports without their car. If you live in London, you probably don't need a car. Now, I, I only got a car when I started working in Cranfield. But, uh, Although Heathrow, many people argue if you live quite near to it, it's quite hard to get there by public transport. You probably drive to Heathrow better than get on. It depends where you live and how... And how <laughs> close you're connected yeah. to public transport but uh, many airports have um, difficulties to connect to centers where they can pick up a critical mass of, of, of passengers and uh, some airports <coughs> are fairly um, or exposed to um, communities which are fairly um, dispersed and setting up train connections is challenging. Is well, we're seeing that at Heathrow, aren't we, yeah. with the, the toing and froing around the, the Western Access and, and the Southern Access. I mean, neither are particularly far forward as, as projects, when both are quite, at one level, no-brainer projects. Why would you not? connect Heathrow by rail from, from the West and, and by the South? But the fact that they are such a struggle regulatorily and uh, technically and, and, and all the other issues just shows how difficult it can be. Um, but basically, if Heathrow can resolve the the issue of the emissions, the third runway is in uh, in tatters. So so this, this yeah. is the, 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 the challenge where some airports are more proactive and, and see the need as an opportunity uh, and some airports trying to spread their asset until... Uh, they are forced to, to change. So. so well, yeah. So so let's get into Heathrow then. So in last month's podcast, um, my colleague here, Alex, made quite a bold statement by buying with a caveat with a caveat uh, of coming out all in favour of Heathrow for <laughs> runway as a, as a sensible and pragmatic, and pragmatic I I um, approach to to solving our capacity constraints in in the in the southeast of England. So so where do you stand on that? Is it third runway or is there a solution where perhaps we connect London's, what, six airports? Could we, is there not some way we could better connect them and solve a capacity work crisis that way? Where do you stand, Henrik? I think this is, this is a very interesting question and I think it has been raised uh, in, in different contexts at different periods of, of uh, recent history. Um, ideally, a place like London uh, should consider transport as... Uh, at a different level, uh, providing uh, central access points to um, runways and uh, connect, let's say, one or several central terminal locations in London to runways which are at the outskirts. Um, that, of course, raises a lot of questions about, you know, the, the, the different ownership of airports, you know, yep. uh, that is probably one of the critical points and then um, the entire uh, management of the, the, the passenger process in the city uh, is regulated in a way that uh, airports have their stake 
rail operators, bus operators, uh, all that, um, I think is at stake. And if you really want to improve the overall, let's say, environmental balance, um, we need to, to come up with radical solutions. Because I, I, I do wonder if... We've seen how things like City Mapper have transformed the way we sort of travel around on the ground around cities like London, just opening up options, routes which wouldn't have occurred to us before. It's surely only a matter of time before that gets expanded to, to a more global level and from any given place an app will work out for us. Well, the obvious choice would be to go to Heathrow and fly to whatever. But actually, have you considered the train to Stansted and then the plane to so-and-so and then the train from there is, is just as quick and cheaper and less hassle? And Surely that's where we're going, isn't it? It's definitely happening. Um, that's the, the, the drive to reduce costs on both airline and airport side. Uh, and as as you just mentioned, the, the the key challenge is to get passengers into the airport. So, in in the long term, airports need to reconsider their position within the transport industry. And if they become transport providers for people who are flying into a city to take them to the place they want to be, then we're talking about a different model. That's probably. 20 years ahead. Mm. But um, if you really imagine what IATA predicts, like 7 billion people flying, which is the entire global population today, Crikey. Uh, that is a dimension which requires drastic measures. So are we saying pragmatically then, a third runway at Heathrow, <laughs> whilst we embrace these new modern emerging technologies in 20 years' time, is, is, is a sensible way to go? Uh, in, in this kind of model, uh, you would see a fair share of all airport operators from uh, a commonly shared infrastructure, and then it wouldn't be that hard to say, Gatwick gets a second runway earlier, without losing business. So the, the, the challenge we have right now is uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a terrible amount of, of infrastructure around Heathrow which disallows us to think um, Heathrow can be left out of, of further infrastructure development. But if there's an op opportunity to you know, check in at Heathrow and fly out from, from Gatwick, uh, that would, would be a very smart movement. You know, and it was dispersed. Um, noise and emissions from, from aircraft uh, without uh, taking business away from, from Heathrow. So that, that kind of is something I, I, I could imagine. Th this is um, something you have to have serious conversations at, at, at global level, I would say. Talking about connectivity and linking up our airports, Hyperloop has emerged as a potential contender for linking London's airports and we caught up with the main promoter of uh, the Hyperloop Technologies at Bentley's Infrastructure Symposium um, here in London uh, back in May. And Henrik, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Hyperloop technology for airport connectivity is uh, a game changer. Um, you know, when we start looking at, at multiple airports that serve a region, 
Um, well, the question I would say then is, is that the right way to go about expanding uh, capacity? Um, could existing uh, airports uh, be better connected? I mean, in the time that it takes for you to go from terminal to terminal, if you could go from an airport to another airport, and by the way, with our system, you go from airside to airside because it is totally secure. All of a sudden, it is a game changer. Imagine, you know, having airports connecting to airports, but imagine now that because of the security and the ability for each pod to only go where it's programmed to go and no one can get off in between, imagine now you can have remote check-in terminals within the cities. No longer do you have to build massive terminals. You can actually have remote terminals in city centers. And that pod would check you in, check your baggage in, and take you straight airside to your point of departure. All of a sudden, I think the whole logic around airport planning uh, could be affected. And, and, and I think that's something that we could also really, really look at as we go forward. I I do like the, 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 the thoughts of... Uh... Hyperloop one. Um, in the, the problem you have in, in aviation terms is that everything is segmented, and um, considering a, a system like Hyperloop one uh, is a major disruptor in the current airport business. But I'm more positive about that because if we think about replacing. Uh, short-distance flights by um, systems like Hyperloop, high-speed trains, we reducing emissions, we, we improving the environmental balance, and we allowing possibly more slots for long-distance flights, uh, which I think is a bigger challenge for Hyperloop One systems. Uh, Europe can be connected quite easily by uh, Hyperloop uh, tunnel systems, uh, there's a cost to it, but in the long term, um, we have to to see aviation as part of a global transport plan. Yeah. So you see Hyperloop really better at connecting cities within a a reasonable urban area, a, a reasonable geographic area than than perhaps you know simplistically linking Heathrow, Gatwick, Sunset, that sort of thing, freeing up those. Yeah, freeing up those those those, those slots in, in airports to, to cater for this 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 rapid demand for travel on a, on a much kind of um, much longer distance scale. Yeah, I mean, if we have to decide what kind of capacity we we provide, uh, we probably can't cut on long distance flights for some time, but there are more convenient ways of travelling from from London to Paris. I would not take a plane if I can take the train if it allows me to do because it's much more convenient it takes a 20 minute bus ride to a central location in London uh, and uh, after two hours I'm arriving in central Paris so the, the whole experience is less disruptive but basically I believe this is an, uh, an example for the aviation industry to think how they can improve its attractiveness uh, for people who fly so that the terminal which we discussed in the beginning is a, is a people's place a meeting place uh, rather than um, a 
place where too many systems are cramped, uh, creating an unnecessary complexity of, of, uh, of activities. So if you drop your bag at some point, travel to a terminal, this is already part of your experience. I think the role of, of airports like Heathrow uh, can become uh, m very, very different. And it's not taking business away from them. It's it's reconsidering their role in 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 the in, in the uh, transport sector in, in a city. Of course, it it goes along with a complex uh, set of regulation and and and, and so on. But um, the driver of all that is is capacity, cost, and environment, and that will override traditional patterns of how we how we think aviation today. And that, of course, you're pointing out is the domain of the airport operator. They don't have to rely quite so much on all the external forces working beautifully together. That The best case scenarios are Helsinki already long-term planning and doing things well thought out in advance. What are your favourite examples of airports that are pushing that leisure boundary today and, and what could be done without too much you know, negative influence from outside? Well, I think in the first place, airports need to uh, see themselves as an, a place within the urban context which has an impact. So whenever you create entertainment, commercial facilities, that um, begins to create competition to the existing urban environment. So the, so this, this, is, this is something where airports need to be aware of and um, begin to think in, in, in cooperative context, also with the, the cities they serve, um, to advertise their location as one, not competing airport city type development against the, the city itself. Um, so we, we see Munich as a very ex interesting example with the Munich Airport Center. Uh, the new campus they built with a new typology of um, um, buildings and office structures for particular industries which are related to travel. Um, we see Vienna Airport, which uh, have a very um, uh, strong ambition to turn the airport into an urban environment. And uh, Vienna is probably one of the most uh, sophisticated urban environments on, on the planet. The airport uh, still has uh, the, the image of the end of a motorway. Uh, but they recently, well, a few years ago, employed a real estate developer to, or real estate manager to turn the airport into an attractive city location which has already won some awards. It's very interesting uh, that some airports, from a very different point of view, go different, follow different strategies to turn the airport into an attractive place and include facilities like, like a post office, which all of a sudden creates uh, connectivity for, for people who work uh, at the airport, who um, are employed or who do business there. So it's, it's, uh, there's no one-fit-all example, but you can, f can feel uh, different airports do different, different things. And 
most advanced are uh, airports in Asia, which have uh, historically emerged as the latest generation of airports, Singapore, uh, Seoul, um, Hong Kong. And they're already designed with a commercial uh, approach where the American airports, who were kind of the first wave of airports, had a very different agenda when they were set up. And the Europeans are kind of in, in the middle. So, the, and, and again, it's, it's learning from each other, you know, because each generation of airport needs to redevelop and learn from each other. So, so what do we think? I mean, um, Singapore and its beautiful waterfall, I hear. Do we think that's working? Are people standing in awe and hanging out and having a drink and, and social time around? Well, if, if you look at Singapore already, um, people spend their weekend having lunch at the airport and then go shopping because... And then go home. They don't get go on a plane. And they yeah. go home, yes. So, and you've got a supermarket in the terminal, you know, so, so you, you've, you, you, you begin to, to see the airport as a, a normal building of the city mm. and uh, you connect the, the terminal to public transport, you create connectivity and that's not just for passengers. So mm. it's... It's basically uh, getting around the, the idea of uh, the airport as a peak hour facility, uh, bringing in users uh, 24-7. And you're dealing with a lot of uh, anyone who's anti-airports, anti you're, you're bringing a lot of people on board with that, aren't you? Absolutely. Exactly. That's, that's uh, what, what airports, uh, good airports uh, understood, that they're not just uh, infrastructure for a certain transient community, but they are there for, for a large number of people. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Henrik. Thank you for coming and joining us um, today uh, and, and speaking on, on episode two of, of the Engineers Collective. Really great having you. Thank you for joining us. Thank I was you, going Henrik. to say it's flown by, but then realised that's just a bit oh, too corny. Oh, there's a great pun, isn't there? <laughs> well, thank you very much and, uh, uh, for the opportunity, and uh, I hope uh, some of those thoughts will be implemented very very soon. Well, thank you, Henrik. Thank you for joining us uh, this month. That has been a really fascinating conversation. And it's all that left for me to say is, is thank you all for listening and, and to remind you that this podcast is brought to you in association with uh, Bentley Systems. Digital technology is changing infrastructure. As a project delivery firm, a consultant, contractor or owner operator, you may already be going digital, but need help to overcome your fear of uncertainty, embrace change and realise the benefits of digital innovation. Bentley focuses on infrastructure and with software valued for its depth, breadth and scalability can help you gain insight from the data you collect, create and coordinate to improve decisions and achieve better business outcomes. To get there, work with a partner you can trust. Take your digital assessment and accelerate your pace of possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com slash en slash going digital and if you liked what you heard this week don't forget to hit subscribe feel free to tell all your friends and even give us a few stars and friendly feedback if you'd like join us next month where we already have our next guest lined up mr andrew mcnaughton technical director at hs2 most recently and a former chief engineer of network rail so who better to speak to about the future of rail